Welcome to another episode of the GI Podcast. This is Günther. Welcoming you to an episode where it's about grammar. It's der, die und das. Mostly leading to a bit of frustration with German learners. But Katrin has some information for you. And then we're also talking about the fall season. We did have a listener request asking, what are you guys actually doing in the fall in Europe? Where do you go? What do you look at? What are the particular places that we should go once travel opens back up? And of course, last but not least, we are having fall events as well, even though in limited form, such as this podcast still being done from our respective home offices. Yet still, welcome to the Germanic American Institute podcast. Enjoy today's episode. Episodes of the Germanic American Institute. Welcome to Corinth, where Germanic-speaking European countries, Germany, Deutschland, Austria, Österreich, Switzerland, Schweiz, blend with the Midwestern United States. Hallo, Servus, Grüezi. We are here and there, and we invite you to come along on the journey. We have Katrin back in the house. Katrin, wie geht's? Moin. And we have Erin back. Erin, hallo. Hallo, nice to be here. Erin <laughs> um, is taking the position of Claudia. And, well, Erin, do you want to talk about why you're taking the position of Claudia? Yes, well, they're, they're big shoes to fill. Uh, and uh, I, I guess I'll be sitting in her chair but uh, probably covering some different things. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, so Claudia has, uh, she was with the GAI, I think for uh, over four years and did a tremendous, tremendous job with our language services program, obviously with the podcast here um, and many other things. And uh, she was a very passionate advocate uh, on our apprenticeship and workforce development program that the GAI started a couple of years ago. Maybe too passionate um, because she has moved on to continue to work on workforce development uh, for a local government agency. So we will miss her, but we're so excited uh, that she found another uh, position that she's excited about here. But uh, can we fairly say that by extending the workforce development and apprenticeship program that we haven't completely lost her, but she's really continuing the mission that we've started. And we'll probably see her back uh, here and there or hear her back here and there on the podcast to fill us in how this actually all comes together and how this program extends its positive impacts. For sure. And we definitely said, Auf Wiedersehen, that we will see her again. I'm sure our paths will cross. Perfect. Very much looking forward to that, of course, on my behalf, also sitting in the driver's seat of the podcast. Uh, well, Claudia, if you're listening to this, thank you. Grammar, der, die, das, articles, nominatives, what is what, how am I even going to start this, and is it das Boot, die Boot, or der Boot, or der Podcast, die Podcast, or das Podcast? Katrin, what's the deal with articles? Or is it das Boot, or das Boot, right? Um, yes, yeah, so these seem to be perpetual questions that I encounter in language classes, and I have yet to find a student who is very secure about their usage of the articles and the different gendered nouns. First of all, to explain, yeah, in German, all nouns have a gender usually raises some eyebrows because how can nouns have genders, especially from a, you know, English native speaker point of view, but they do indeed. So every noun in German has a gender, either 
female or male or neuter. And unfortunately, there aren't any hard and fast rules for that. Um, most, really the majority of German nouns just have to be memorized, but there are some pointers and some hints. Um, actually, there are quite a few and it is possible to train this, which is why we have now set up a class, a daddy does class. It's part of our Fallvergnügen, Fallvergnügen um, series uh, that will start on October 26, which is a Monday. It will be socially distanced online and it will be the five weeks of that. Um, so check out our website and um, the classes are up. You're certainly welcome to sign up and I'll be teaching that. Anyhow, we have discussed here previously uh, on this podcast that we have a few rules. For example, anything starting in ung, heit and kite is always feminine. If we use the hen ending, the diminutive that makes things smaller and cuter, um, that will always be a das um, gender on there. Hence the word Mädchen, which is, you know, the cute little girl rather than might, um, is neuter and not female, although generally natural gender like man, woman uh, corresponds with the article that is connected to it. Also, very important going to Germany, um, alcohol, we've mentioned that before, I believe too, is masculine, except beer, which is neuter. Do not know why that is the case, but that really shows you the randomness, because really it is random. And German has had so many influences from other languages that these words find you know, themselves into the language. And then nobody can really tell you anymore why a certain word has a certain gender. And frankly, within Germany, there are differences as well. I mean, one of the most famous ones is uh, Nutella. Any of you who have um, spread that on your bread or on a piece of fruit or something, and no, we're not getting a commission here, but some people are saying das Nutella, some people are saying die Nutella, I'm in the das Nutella uh, party, I have to say, but it's sometimes just not very clear, and sometimes genders just kind of show up. Um, you know, the non-binary situation has not reached uh, German nouns so much, pronouns certainly, but uh, we still very heavily gender when we're talking grammar. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Everything around you, and that's usually one of my, my tips, if you will, during particularly the start one classes, I would just simply suggest look around your environment and actually Germanize your environment. So you have a fridge in the kitchen, as is der Kühlschrank. You have an office desk, der Schreibtisch. Put yourself little sticky notes on there, and before you know it, you're actually going to develop this habit, if you will, to perhaps uh, intuitively start to associate genders with certain objects. And a big fan of visual learning so um our newer textbooks we have really settled everything well 99 percent of our textbooks onto huber and they do a very nice job color coding every new noun that they're introducing in the units 
Um, and to take that a step further, I recommend to my students to write down columns. You know, everything feminine maybe goes on the left, everything masculine and in the middle. Um, and that way, if you can't quite remember what the gender was of one of those nouns, maybe in your head you still see, oh, that was in the left column somewhere. What is the, the, the overall importance to actually really know every single article, as many articles as possible in nominative? Um, well, if you are trying to speak German as correctly as you possibly can, it's really the mother of all rules, right? Because adjective endings, I mean, all sorts of things are based on the gender of a noun. Um, there's really no way around it. Although, frankly, for people, Germans are more and more coming up with non-gendered words to include everybody with it. Um, however, for everyday speaking just about objects, um, it is immensely important. But, and this is a big but, um, if you are a non-German native speaker that is in Germany speaking ger German, and you know, it's probably fairly obvious that you are learning the language, do not worry about it. People will understand you. It is not that you can communicate what you want to communicate. And really, for the vast majority of our students, communication is the biggest goal of why they're taking German classes, not because they want to you know, speak perfect German or write perfect German or something. So don't get hung up about it. If you do a mistake, that is completely fine. And frankly, as an American native speaker, you will get a lot of bonus points for attempting to learn a foreign language because Americans do not exactly have the reputation of learning a lot of foreign languages in Europe. Right, and I have to say when I have visited Germany um, that people were so nice about it, especially, uh, you know, I'm like always learning. Um, and so with, with some of my friends there, I actually asked them like, please correct me because I'm still learning. Um, but I was afraid that someone would just jump in if I, if I said like der Buch instead of das Buch uh, or whatever. Um, and they were always so gracious about it and like, oh, dein Deutsch is so good. <laughs> like, okay. But uh, I definitely could use a refresher on these. I suppose the, the other side, if you will, of the coin is to just use as many articles as possible, obviously, in the journey of picking up nouns. And at some point, almost inevitably, you're going to develop sort of an intuitive understanding as to what could possibly fit. And truth be told, there are nouns, of course, that I haven't used now in a very long time either because I've been in the US for 20 some years now. And those nouns that are perhaps a little ambiguous to me, I actually go back and say, how do I feel about this? And this intuition essentially then assigns an article. So for instance, uh, a, an, an example would be, I was pretty dead set that it actually is, uh, it is der virus, masculine for virus. Obviously in Corona times, COVID times, that would be an applicable thing to think about. Whereas when I read German Austrian news media, the virus is always referred to as essentially neuter. So it's das virus. 
Yeah, and I believe there are some regional variations in there too, but I completely agree with you. Um, I would have always considered Virus there. And to me, when I read um, German publications and people are talking about Das Virus, it still doesn't sit quite right. And truth be told, some publications also still say Der Virus. Mm -hmm. So it is not uniform throughout the entire German-speaking world. And of course, everybody has their points as to why it is Das Virus or Der Virus or whatever. In the end, with that kind of stuff, do it how you want it. So what's the gist here, really? I mean, the takeaways are, at least from my perspective, some German natives who haven't spoken German perhaps as, as uh, consistently because we live here, we also have to go back to our faculties. It's like, okay, this feels better, this is better. Of course, we have a little bit of a head start, which makes absolute sense. But it also means that what we can do for you is enhance your understanding. This is not about perfection. This is just simply about getting more and more into the trenches of understanding articles. And this is really what Monday, October 26th through November 16th with Catherine is for. It's all the Adidas, which is, I think, really great. Maybe I should take that too. <laughs> all right, is there anything else we need to, oh yeah, one question that I wanted to ask Catherine. And I think we touched, about, uh, touched on this uh, about a year ago, roughly. When we talked about uh, pronouns, uh, yes. we, we briefly touched on it uh, in terms of the introduction of, of G, so the X being essentially front-loaded to a pronoun. Are there any new developments that you're aware of? Uh, has it, as I, I guess, uh, become more prevalent nowadays, or is it still sort of ambiguous in limbo and we don't quite know what to do with it? It is still developing. I mean, it is still a fairly new concept when we're talking language development, you know, or germ, the development of German. Um, what has become more prevalent is to put the asterisks in the back of a word um, that we can gender when we're talking about natural gender. So, Lehrer, Lehrerinnen, we had the capitalized um, Binnen I in there where we would just capitalize the I in the middle of the sentence to include women, but there we're still just talking about a binary spectrum, right? Um, so now we are also putting in an asterisk to include anyone that is not on the binary um, scale. I don't know if you can even talk about spectrum when you're talking about binary, but um, anyhow, it is definitely developing. The consciousness for this kind of situation is increasing steadily. Um, and I mean, you know, the social changes of the last year or two, um, but especially of the last year, of course, have also taken place in Germany. It's not like Germany is, you know, isolated and uh, this cute forest nation or anything like that. So, yeah, there there are the changes and we will keep observing what is happening and then introduce that into our language um, teaching. And at some point, um, we are talking about introducing a short class on how this is being done right now in Germany. A big part of it is to just circumvent gender altogether and yeah. really use neutral terms. So instead of die Lehrerin or der Lehrer, we would say der Lehrende, which is technically masculine, but really doesn't describe masculine, but describes everybody. 
So for instance, if you were to talk about yourself in that sense and somebody were to ask you what your occupation is, rather than identifying by gender, you would just simply say, ich bin ein Lehrender. For example. Yeah, and it is complex. I mean, for me as a native speaker too, I have to think about how I am wording or phrasing things. And I think in the end, it is just so worth it and we need to do it. There is zero question. But of course, as always in times of transition, you will find some resistance and you will find some confusion. Um, And we will get through these times. I remember the episode you did, Katrin, on this topic, um, I think last year. So maybe we can include that in the show notes because that was a really great introduction to the changes underway. We will copy that into the show notes uh, and let you know which episode that was. Moving on from uh, genders, their D does, it's fall. Looks great outside for the next two and a half days until uh, the next wind blows through uh, Minnesota and all the beautiful leaves are suddenly gone and winter essentially rears its head. And of course, we have the same seasons in Europe, in Austria, Germany, Switzerland. And a couple of things I think that are particularly interesting are tied to that. For one, we have a, let's just call it um, semi-pronounced fall culture, particularly relating to food, drink, gatherings, and just having fun. And this is, again, answering in part a listener question. So thanks so much for actually sending that in. And while we're on that note, if you have any questions, keep them coming, podcast at gai-mn.org. Again, if you're writing it down, it's podcast at gai-mn.org. Now, talking about fall, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is fall food and fall drinks. Uh, I'm just going to reluctantly admit that I am not the biggest wino, which immediately means that I usually have to hand in my Austrian citizenship, but we have something called young wine. So Junge Wein, fresh grapes, essentially the first batch, if you will, that is uh, bottled. It tastes like grape juice, really quote unquote light footed grape juice, and it will take your shoes off if you don't watch it. The same thing is for most, and most is something that Catherine has as well in her lands. We do, although I have to say I know much less about most than, and you can already tell we're pronouncing it a little <laughs> bit, um, than I know about young wine or what we call Federweiser. But um, I don't know about most, but I know with the Federweiser, when we say we're bottling it, um, we also mean that we are not putting an airtight cork or lid on it because it is still fermenting. The process hasn't been finished, which is also why it, you know, knocks you off your feet because you don't notice how much alcohol you're actually taking in. It just tastes like grape juice or, you know, apple juice in the case of moss. Um, And so the air pressure has to escape somewhere, which is also why it is very, very difficult to find this young wine here in the United States. And it's not something that you can really import because things will explode on the way. Most is an interesting concoction, I suppose would be the wrong word, an interesting product, let's call it that. It's apple, apple cider, really. It comes in clear or in cloudy, and it usually it's, uh, it's coming in a bottle size that's called a Doppler. 
Do you know what a Doppler is? Catherine? Aaron? No. no. <laughs> a Doppler basically means a double, a two liter. So like having a two liter uh, soft drink bottle, we have a two liter glass, most M-O-S-T, most bottle. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of, uh, of cider. That's a lot of cider. It, it certainly is. And again, uh, this is where massive gatherings happen. Of course, not right now. It's uh, still somewhat limited, of course. But still, we gather, we enjoy most. And then, of course, we serve all kinds of either cold cuts uh, kind of idea. Or, now that it's getting colder, goulash in a million different variations. Now, bane of every Austrian's existence is when we suddenly have goulash in a form that is really no longer considered goulash. And I think we also need to establish that there is a significant difference in between what we refer to as goulash in the US and what we refer to as goulash back home in the motherland. Uh, I am not the best cook. I'm just gonna see, I, I'm actually seeing Erin and Katrin just nodding. So uh, please uh, lay it on us. What is the American version of goulash? I think I was nodding to encourage you because I don't know the difference. Katrin? <laughs> um, so what I've seen as goulash here really has something to do with uh, minced meat or hamburger more so. And it also, from what I've seen, was more of a hottish situation. Maybe it's more of the Minnesota version of goulash then, but it had like elbow noodles mixed into it. Um, and... I'm unclear where the word goulash for that actually came from. Yeah, I'm also quite quite uh, surprised by the association. And that's exactly the same way that I have seen it with essentially um, noodles, a, a bed of noodles with meat tossed on it and a little bit of sauce. And uh, is yeah, hamburger meat. And it's sort of the intersection between a sloppy joe meets a noodle dish. Yeah, that's, yeah. How... Yeah. US, US, our, you know, token Austrian here. How would you make a true Hungarian, Austrian, Bohemian goulash situation happen? Okay, now you mixed four different goulash sorts into one. Uh, let's just go with the way that I actually experienced the wonders of goulash. So for one, um, goulash has a very particular, I would say, function. Well, it has multiple functions, but one really comes to mind. If you had too much most or young wine the day before, goulash is a phenomenal hangover food. So let's just uh, put that off to the side and talk about what we put in. Um, the recipe calls for two parts of onions to one part of meat. So let's go back here and say two kilograms of onions and one kilogram of beef cubes or cubed beef rather. And the intent is that the onions are sitting on a very, very slow simmer until they actually dissolve. They become almost like soup-like. And at that point, a little bit of water is being added and then the meat goes into to this sauce soup thing and really is being cooked in there. So the meat, takes on the uh, the taste of, of the onions. It's, it's incredibly flavorful. And the paprika that we add really only comes at the end so that it doesn't burn in the process. We do not, as far as I've grown up with goulash, add um, pickles. 
So for us, it's just straight up goulash made out of onions, meats, meat. And then we have what we call Sovietin knödel. Knödel being a dumpling. And the Sovietin, Sovietin is a... Napkin. Napkin, napkin. yeah. Napkin. Mm -hmm. Once you are done with, with the goulash extravaganza, we usually move on to some savory dessert. So quite, quite interesting, quite interesting, interesting thing. But that's Austria. What are we doing in Germany for fall? Um, there are several ways, of course, uh, for food that is happening in the fall. Soups being one, certainly, a lot of stews. Um, I think what stands out to me, and we've touched about this, uh, touched on this um, before as well, is so-called Flammkuchen or Zwiebelkuchen. And it's a pizza-like situation, although, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get angry emails about that it's not pizza, but what you're having is a dough base um, and that can be either yeast dough or it could also be something more along the lines of a short crust a lot of people put buckwheat actually into it um, and then you have a topping that is made of sour cream mixed with a little bit of egg nutmeg salt pepper um, and you spread it on the dough and on top of that goes onion um, and the thickness of the onion kind of determines whether we are talking about Flammkuchen or Zwiebelkuchen. Uh, Zwiebelkuchen onion cake really has, I would say, at least a centimeter thick layer of onions on top of it. While Flammkuchen, the topping is a little bit more sparse. And then in the end, um, with Flammkuchen and Zwiebelkuchen, you could add some bacon and then some chives sprinkled on top to you know, increase taste and increase the color a little bit. Um, it's a really simple dish and it's quite fabulous and it's really well eaten with the young wine that we talked about earlier. So when are you making that? Right. I'm ready for it right now. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping to make a demonstration that we'll put onto our YouTube channel. If you need a taste tester, you got my number. I'm more than happy because I've actually never had it. Oh, okay. Yes. We'll um, see what we can do. Oh. Uh, the other question that we received was also relating to fall. Where do you actually go, being from Vienna or from uh, Hanover? Where where are we headed when it's fall season? Are we actually enjoying fall season? Are we going outside and truly embracing the beauty that is fall? Where do you go in Hanover? Um, in Hannover, we have a fairly large uh, city forest, and that's certainly a place you can go. It's the Eilenriede. Um, you know, it has parks and playgrounds, and you can skate or bike or walk um, or hike through there. If you are looking for going a little bit outside the city, a very popular destination is the Lüneburger Heide, and it's a Lüneburg nature park. It's actually the oldest nature park in Germany, and it was established in 1921 as a nature reserve. It has a lot of heather plants in it um, and fairly vast areas of forest. So just to go on a hike, it is also quite flat. So, you know, like the <laughs> Norddeutsche Tiefebene, the northern German lowlands, you won't have to really hike up any mountains. 
Um, so it's very suitable for all ages. Um, you can also bike through it. It's just a very nice area of uh, the state in Lower Saxony. So I would highly recommend that. In Germany, in general, of course, you have the usual suspects. I mean, Neuschwanstein is spectacular in the fall. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners have been there. And if you're looking down from the castle around the landscape, and I'm a northerner, you know, I'm not uh, necessarily necessarily Bavaria file, Bavaria file, whatever that uh, is called. <laughs> um, but that is truly a spectacular view down there. And then, of course, um, if you're going into Swabia, greetings to Claudia on this, um, the wine regions are really quite nice to look at and hike through as well, albeit with more mountains. Yes. Erin, you spent significant time in the motherland. Uh, where did you go when the fall season came around? Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about that. I actually was in Germany a year ago. Um, in an area um, near Birkenfeld. And um, it's a small town in like the Edelstein region, um, sort of close to uh, the Mosul um, wine regions. Um, I, I wish I had a map in front of me, I don't. But um, I, I flew into Frankfurt uh, airport and we drove, you know, about 90 minutes north or, um, I forget because I was so jet lagged. I just listened to where the navigation was telling me, but it was absolutely stunning. Um, it was some of the most beautiful fall colors that I've seen. So I think there are definitely some regions uh, that we can add to our list. Did you perceive the Germans uh, to do anything significant, special, anything that stood out to you during the fall season? Or was it basically just like what you would expect? Um, I think it was sort of the usual. Um, I think there's probably more fun stuff for kids. Um, and, um, you know, I guess Halloween happens in like a more limited version. Um, so I think I did go to a Halloween party or two in Germany, but I think that was more for the party, less for the Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do Halloween now too in very limited fashion, of course, uh, but it's, it's made it across the pond for actually quite some years ago. And we do embrace what would be I would say a kid's national holiday now in Europe just as well. I mean, whatever excuse that we can find to dress up and, and uh, have fun, I think is good enough of an excuse. From the Vienna perspective, of course, I mean, Vienna is the, the city of parks. You To recommend any one particular park, I think would be an injustice to all the other parks. So in Vienna, just knock yourself out. Uh, and just enjoy the city. It's interesting though, when you get outside of uh, the city, there is something called the Wiener Wald. So the Vienna woods verbatimly translated. And one of the two mountains that are flanking Vienna to the north are the uh, der Kahlenberg und der Bisamberg. Both have actually a cobblestone street uh, that you can drive on uh, all the way to the top, particularly Kalenberg has an observation deck that lets you look uh, across Vienna. And particularly with Vienna being a relatively clean city, you actually still can see all of Vienna from that particular outlook. So that would be one of the recommendations. The other word city that has come up is the often copied, very revered and actually really copied 
city or village of Holstadt, which is about 40 miles south of Salzburg. The Chinese actually really, as far as I understand, have made a replica copy in China of Holstadt. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. It was the emperor's uh, essentially refuge, if you will. And it's, just look it up online, just Google for a couple of images if you haven't seen Holstadt. It really is picturesque, quaint, shouldn't even exist. It's kind of built into the uh, foot uh, footing of a mountain, into the uh, first slope of a mountain. Salt was mined back at Roman times. Uh, you can still do the salt mine tours. And from a very critical perspective, um, is it worth going to Holstadt and staying overnight? Frankly, no. Um, it is relatively high price because of the scarcity of rooms. It's a, it's a small village. You would spend about two and a half, maybe three hours uh, really walking every nook and granny of, of Holstadt, maybe have lunch or dinner there. But then I would retreat back up the road 40 miles towards Salzburg where you just have, I would say more options. And during regular tourism days when COVID does not reduce us in our abilities, uh, Holstadt is hopelessly overrun. So that's certainly something to consider. Is it worth going? Absolutely. Is the experience is phenomenal. You will never experience anything like it again. Is it worth staying overnight? My suggestion would be no. If we get hate mail from Holstadt, um, sorry people, but that's simply the truth on that. And the last note that I have here, actually, it's all about the kids, particularly in the fall. I mean, we jump into big mounds of, of leaves that mom and dad put together and rake together in the backyard. But we also have something called das Laternenfest. Catherine, Hello. when was the last time you've been at the Laternenfest? Um, that was, I think, when my son, my older son, was quite little yet, and it was in Rice Park. But um, in Germany, I think my last Laternenfest was when I was about 10. Um, which tends to be the age when it's kind of filtered out. Um, of course, you build your own little lantern. And in my childhood, you put some real candles in there, some tea lights, and hope nothing would burn down while you're walking in the you know parade of kids around the neighborhood, um, singing the songs that go with it. Once I moved here, it was then somehow connected to St. Martin. And I have to admit, I had never heard of St. Martin before I even moved here. Um, the area I'm coming from is very Lutheran. So that might have something to do with it. But we certainly took our lanterns and walked around and sang and basically enjoyed the last few possibilities to be outside for extended uh, periods of time before the fall storms were coming in and it actually became winter. Wasn't it, ich gehe mit meiner Laterne, meine Laterne geht mit mir? Absolutely, yes. Oh, leuchten die Sterne und unten da leuchten wir. Yes. So just in case you're wondering, the last time I've been uh, of einem uh, Laternenfest was, man, it's got to be 40-some years ago. I still remember at least the first couple of lines of that song. Erin, did you uh, experience this Laternenfest with your kids while you were in Europe? I didn't, but um, my sister who lives in Hamburg, her niece, uh, or excuse me, her daughter, my niece, <laughs> uh, they did Laternenfest. Fest. And I remember she sent pictures and me and my parents were like, what is this? What are they doing? Why do they, I think they, 
they even had candles. Um, so we were sort of surprised and concerned, but it looked really fun. I guess we are indoctrinating our children pretty early on to the use of open fire in uh, easily flammable containers so that when Christmas comes around and the real candles go on the tree that we don't burn the house down. It's an early test whether you can handle it. <laughs> Lanterns here with my kids and they've always had real candles in there as well. And that's kind of part of the fun, you know, of the excitement that you just don't get with battery lit candles. No, you can't. Uh, I'm actually, I'm going to have to ask my, my sister and see whether they still use candles or if it's now battery operated. I wonder what it's like nowadays. Or maybe if you know, by the way, dear listeners, uh, just send us an email and let us know what it's actually like to do the Latinum Fest nowadays. Does it exist still like you remember it? Has it changed? Uh, fill us in, so to speak. And uh, we might touch back on that next time when we record the next session. But we have events. We are not just, like I said in the beginning, we're not just letting you down with no events. We still do stuff. Erin, what are we doing? Thanks, yeah, we have a lot going on um, at the GAI this fall. Um, so last weekend, an exhibit opened at the house. It's called Stars and Stripes Over the Rhine. And this um, exhibit focuses on the US um, occupation of um, the Rheinland Pfalz area um, between 1918 and 1923, so after the First World War. And it goes through sort of some of the cultural and personal connections that were made. Um, it covers some little known history around that time. And that exhibit um, can be seen in person on Sundays between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. at the house. Um, next Sunday, October 18th, and there are two dates in November. And around our series, uh, which we're calling Transatlantic Chapters, so we have some other talks. We have a virtual talk uh, with Mark Ritchie, head of Global Minnesota uh, here in uh, Minneapolis. And he's giving a talk uh, with more of a Minnesota angle. It's called Organized Kindness and Organized Gratitude and Minnesota Tradition. And that covers uh, some Minnesota philanthropists um, to help stave off the hunger uh, in Germany and other countries in Europe after World War One. That talk is, well, as we're recording it, uh, it's tomorrow, October 14th is his talk, but we'll have it available on our YouTube channel. And he's also delivering it in person on October 23rd. And um, we have another talk on November 23rd with David Tompkins, a uh, professor of German at Carleton on denazification and relations with Germany after the Cold War. And all that information can be found on our website at gai-mn.org slash chapters. And we have Barbara Miller coming up as well, right? Yes, for those of you who are uh, German citizens or dual citizens, um, she is giving a talk on dual citizenship and uh, that will take place online on Zoom and more information can be found on our website, but that is on November 8th at one o'clock p.m. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is I actually just remembered while I listened to the events coming up, the Republic of Austria changed one of its laws uh, effective September 1st, 2020. And the idea behind this change was that if you have in your lineage, somebody who was essentially chased out of Austria by the Nazi regime, 
and I think actually even predating that. So there are certain stipulations that would have to be fulfilled. But if there is a direct lineage, so you could be um, the great grandson, for instance, or the grandson of somebody who was who left Austria under force or under the threat of something, and you can document that, you can actually apply to get your Austrian citizenship back. To date, as far as I understand, Austria has received just shy of 9,000 applications to actually do that. Okay, well, thank you very much for that uh, tidbit, which could be relevant. Um... I think so. I mean, I have to find out a little bit more. Maybe we can actually uh, contact somebody and have them speak uh, with a little more detail on it. Uh, see if we can unearth the Austrian honorary consul, which we have one in Minneapolis. I just don't know where he's at. And uh, take it from there. So that's really it. Uh, unless, Katrin, do we have anything else? I don't believe so. Until next time. Erin, anything yeah, else? Yeah. Um I would add, uh, we have another class as part of Fall Newton, which is um, Geheimnisse des Lebens. And that is uh, the secrets of life. Uh, I think that starts later in November. Um, and that's um, also taking place online for more advanced students of German. But um, it sounds like a very interesting topic to me. <laughs> it's getting pretty philosophical there. And that class is taught by Valentin which of course is always an indicator for quality. Right, yeah, I, I hear, I've heard of, of Valentin. He has quite a following among uh, German students at the GAI. Um, from, from a native speaker's perspective, I would wanna say that uh, Valentin is about as close to guru as you can get. Yeah, and I would also like to add that he has quite the following, not just from the students, but also from the teachers. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, count count me in 100%. All right. Well, I guess that was it uh, for this episode. Uh, thanks for sticking around. Uh, this is the episode that will launch in the middle of October. Uh, of course, we have one more coming at you toward the end of October 2020. Hope that everybody stays safe out there. Katrin, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Winter. Erin, good to have you back and uh, good to see you in future episodes. Thank you. It was fun. And uh, this is Gunther signing off. Uh, thanks for being here again. If you do have any topical recommendations, want to weigh in on anything, whether that's goulash related, fall festivities related, or if you want to just know how we go about drinking young wine, it's podcast at gai-mn.org. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>